Well, this morning, I wanted to share with you on the subject of 2020 vision. 2020 vision. And I want to discuss the power of seeing clearly. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sobriety, spiritual sobriety today. You said as you prayed through the Apostle Paul that we will have our eyes, the eyes of our hearts open so that we will know and see that which you have for us. Oh God, that every single one of us may see clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to discuss on the power of clarity, the power of a clear vision as we start this new year and this new decade. You see, when we don't see clearly, we trip over things and we walk into walls, don't we? When we don't see clearly, we get hurt, we get lost. When we don't see clearly, we could take the wrong exit in the road and we can arrive at a place we never planned on arriving at. So much wrong happens in your life because you don't see clearly. You may be on the other side of a really horrible relational experience. All of that happened because when you went in there, you didn't see clearly. So much goes wrong and continues to go wrong when we don't have clear perspective. To be deceived means we do not see things for what they really are. That's really what deception is. And when we don't see things for what they really are is when we are being deceived. It's almost like saying, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't see things for what they were. Only after I bought that nice watch from the guy walking around at the flea market, I bought it for a top dollar. Uh, only afterwards I realized it was a fake. You see, I didn't see things for what they were at the time, and I made a mistake. And so my prayer is that we as, an, as a congregation, that we will see things clearly. In other words, we will be free from deception. And in the same way, throughout scriptures, we are constantly warned not to be deceived. In Ephesians 5, 6, it says, Let no one deceive you, how? With empty words. It is possible to be deceived by empty words. Matthew 24, 4 says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. Why? Because God is not mocked. You're not going to get away with being deceived. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9a says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. James 1.16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So when we, see the so when we see with sober eyes is when we can make more accurate assessments in life about everything. And so we can increase our probability of actually getting to where God wants for us to get and for, we are, for where we are planning to get. See, there are, there are, there are three major ways or areas in, um, where we tend to be short-sighted in. There are three areas where we tend to lose perspective in. And, um, or you might say three areas we tend to get deceived in. These three areas are the folks. Now, there are many more, but these are three areas that I want to highlight today because uh, if, if there is a place where we could possibly throw away a lot of opportunity and many years, many relationships, and, and, and many great harvests, it's in these three areas. Why? Because I see the Bible warning us about these three areas all the time. And so I wanted to just highlight these three areas to us as a family. And so as we enter this new year, let's see clearly. Let's not run into walls, trip over things, and arrive at places we never planned on arriving at. Amen? Amen. The three areas are simply this. The first is the reality of truth. Where do you find your truth? Uh, the second is the riches of this world is a, is a deception and then the relationships in life. We can be so deceived in those three areas and those three areas can derail you in such a very significant way. So let's first look at the reality of truth. My very first uh, flight that I ever took, I think I was about eight years old or seven years old, can't remember, but was um, in a four-seater Cessna. I'm sure if you think back, of the, of the late 1970s, if you see an airplane from that era, a four-seater Cessna, you wouldn't want to climb in it right now anymore. 
But anyway, I did back then, and um, we took off from a little farm town airport in South Africa, uh, in Zanin, South Africa, and we flew all the way to Johannesburg. And uh, the pilot's name was Art Shepard. I'm sure my mom would remember him. And he was a personal friend of ours, and he owned this little plane. And as we flew through a very thick cloud, we came to a place of zero visibility, and it started feeling like we were no longer flying level or forward. It felt like, uh, it, it, it actually felt like um, we were flying crooked and aiming downwards. It was like we were all three in this, we were three of us in this plane. We were sitting crooked to the left, and we were, we, it felt like we were leaning forward. And the passenger on the other side of Art Shepard, who was the pilot, this passenger told him to pull the plane up and level it out. But remember, we couldn't see anything. You're just in this cloud, so you don't quite know where you are aiming at. And uh, Art Shepard, the pilot, disagreed and pointed to the instrument. It's very loud in there. He pointed to this instrument on the dashboard and said, Nope, um, don't go with how you feel. I remember him shouting it at the top of his voice. Don't go with how you feel. Trust the instruments. They are showing that we are perfectly straight, leveled out, flying into the right direction, high enough to not hit anything. We're fine. And the guy goes, really? <laughs> I feel like I'm going this way. <laughs> Our shepherd was right. Sometimes life works that way. Um, you know, even though God's Word calls us to a very specific path, we feel like we're on a different path. We feel like we're not going to make it. Even though we know the Word of God calls us to a very specific response, we feel like this is not really the response that will satisfy the position I'm in right now. Or we know God calls us to a very specific way of thinking or a very specific friendship circle. Or God calls us to commit to a very specific, whether it be a church, family, or whatever it is. But sometimes, uh, you know, it feels like, man, where, where are we going? This doesn't feel like we're going in the right direction. And even though we know these scriptures, these scriptures that outline these things in life for us, everything in you feels like you are going the wrong direction, making the wrong decisions, you're not going straight. You're going crooked and you're going not up but down. The truth is, if we hold fast <coughs> to this instrument that God has given us, the Word of God, then we are safe. If you hold fast to what it says right here, you are safe. Don't throw anything away. Hold fast to what God has said. Nothing will ever be lost from the Word of God. Not a full stop. Nothing. The truth is, if we hold fast, we will be fine. You see, Bible doctrine becomes our anchor. Not tradition. Bible doctrine becomes our anchor. Bible doctrine becomes a sure foundation for us to stand upon. Bible doctrine becomes the unshakable truth you can rely on. Even in the middle of anxiety, you can rely on it. Even in the middle of confusion, you can rely on that. There's no other way of, of understanding God or relating to God other than sound doctrine. This is what God gave us as truth. Truth is not to be found elsewhere. We are constantly tempted to find truth elsewhere, especially when we watch TEDx videos and we watch everybody else's opinion. And after a while, you get convinced of certain things because of the consensus theory of truth. Well, everybody believes this. So somehow there has to be certain kind of truth in there. Isn't this right? If everybody does, then surely we should look into it also. Folks, you don't even have to because there is no truth outside of this. Everything else is a lie. There is no other way of understanding or relating to God than through solid Bible doctrine, no matter how uncomfortable it is. That ride might be feeling like you're not going straight. You're going straight if it's Bible doctrine. You might be going opposite to the entire world, but truth is truth. 
cannot be denied, and it will be eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will remain. I mean, it is solid, and it is eternal. You can rely upon it. Truth is, the most important thing in the world is truth. It is the truth of God that saves. It is the truth of God that sanctifies you. It is the truth of God that leads us to Christ and salvation. It is the truth of God that leads us to God the Father Himself. There couldn't be a more important issue than knowing God's truth. Now, Satan also knows this, and that's why in the Garden of Eden, he did what he still does today. He went to Eve and he said this, Did God really say that? Did he really say that? Satan gave Eve the right to question God. He put it, in, he put it on her to judge whether God was right or wrong. He went on to say, God did not say that. At this point, Satan influenced Eve to believe God was no longer speaking truth. That God, in fact, was a liar. You see, the serpent did not tempt Eve to steal. The serpent did not tempt Eve to kill. The serpent did not tempt Eve to lie. He simply tempted her to question God. And in the same way, the devil is still doing the same thing. <laughs> in this next year, he is again going to cause you to question God. To question the truth. And that's how you question God. By going, well, I don't think this is for me. I don't really know if, you know, this is what the Apostle Paul said. Or this is, we go through some of the things that he says. But that is his ammo. That is his game plan. You see, the serpent isn't very creative. He has one game plan and he sticks to it. Satan's strategy has never changed. He has always attacked the truth, and the church has been called to always defend the truth. So there is a war on truth from the evil forces, and the body of Christ fights that lie, defends the truth of God. No matter how hard it is, no matter how lonely it becomes, you defend the truth of God at all times, no matter which page it is. You see, postmodernism has launched a major attack on truth, and it's encouraged people to find their own truth. That's why today you'll hear a lot of people talk about, well, that's his truth, that's her truth, or that's their truth. People now have the right to define what truth is to them. Truth has been redefined. In our current age, truth has been redefined as opinion or as feeling. Truth is not subjective, however. Truth is always objective. What does that mean? That means that truth is not found, is not subject to my feelings, my thoughts, my opinions, or my experiences. It is not subject. It's not subjective to me. I don't determine it. Truth is objective. It's from outside of me. It is God who sent the truth in Jesus Christ. He sent us His Word. It is objective. So I can never be introspective in order to, in order to discover truth. That is not your source of truth. Walking through a garden and hearing somebody talk to you in your heart is not truth. Truth is what you read, not what you feel. And, and you may have done it, I may have done it, but I've heard a lot of people say this. Like, yeah, you know what, I just, I just didn't know anymore, and then I just, went, I just went on a walk, and I stood by the pond, and I came back, and I just knew God, I just knew what God wanted. This is not, this is, that is subjective truth. And that is where deception thrives. That's like mold in a dark place. <laughs> you know, because you can really come up with any stinking thing you want, isn't it? If truth is subjective. But it's not. It's objective. It's understandable. 
God gave it to you in a way that you could understand it. So don't ever open the Bible and think, I, I don't, I, we can't really know what it says. However, let me go through this. In our current age, of course, there are all these subtle ways Satan attacks the truth. Subtle ways that he attacks the truth. It's not this massive onslaught in the church. No, he comes in subtle ways and attacks the truth that's now in your lap. How does he do it? Well, it's when the first subtle way of attacking the truth is when people say things like, well, God didn't really write the Bible. It's not inspired. It's not authoritative. It is not inerrant. And here, when saying something like that, people strip the Bible from its divine nature. Another thing they do when uh, there's a subtle attack on truth in your life is when people say, well, the Bible is true, but so is my experience. The objective truth is true, but so is sub subjective truth. I can also be a source thereof. This is more dangerous than you realize because now we are equating our current life experiences to God's ultimate and eternal truth. And we should never do that because we are not God. We have but, we don't even have a slither of a perspective that God has. And we want to say, yeah, but I also have truth. You see, so it's very dangerous for us to um, allow those statements to be spoken to us or to, uh, you know, run around in our minds. The third attack, the subtle attack on truth in the life a person's life is when a person says things like, well, the Bible is true, but uh, the Pope also knows truth, and the church council also knows truth, and the church board of elders also knows truth, and, and what about the vision I had last year? And it came to pass, and I just had another vision, so you know it's from God. And what about my dreams? And, and how about, you know, you know what else is true? All those prophecies that are, that are made at the annual prophetic concert, uh, conference in, in, did I say concert? Conference at Florida. That prophetic conference, it's really, it's powerful. It's powerful. Folks, truth is not subjective. It's objective. You have it in your lap already, and it's been bookended. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the household of God, subject, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar in this world of truth. The church is the support in this world of objective truth sent to us by God. The church, that's who we are. That's why we cannot, we cannot um, um, hide away or try and sidestep truths that we find in Scripture. We have to stand upon the truth 100%. Why? Because <laughs> that's who God called us to be. The pillar and the support of truth in this world. We didn't find it within ourselves. We didn't come up with it. We didn't think through it while walking through the forest. No, we read it. And we read it the way it was written, and that's what God said. You know, you know when somebody purposefully twists your words? You know how that makes you feel? I wonder how God sometimes feels. Because really, there is, and we're going to deal with this this year, there is one interpretation of every verse, nothing more. One and one alone. There are no more than one, one interpretation. You didn't mean three things when you said hello. <laughs> when the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or you can do all things through he meant something, right? He didn't mean many things. He meant something, one thing. There is only one interpretation of every single statement ever made throughout Scripture. Now, there are many applications to that one interpretation, but there's only one interpretation. And people lie to you, telling you that, well, that's how you view it. No, that's what it said. There's only one 
understanding, but there's, there are many applications of a verse. There are many applications of a verse. And I hope you can see, and I always use this one example because I want to drive it home, but I hope you can see how people, how people want to reinterpret statements, almost like the news media does. They'll take, they'll take a, bite, you know, a sound bite and then they'll just spin it into a different direction, right? Well, you know, this is why exegetical Bible study is so important because I don't know what God thinks of me when I take a, a soundbite and I just spin it any way, which way I want. Because you don't like it when somebody does it to you, right? So it's important for us to look at what God is saying, know what He meant by what He said, and then apply it to every single part of our lives. One interpretation, many applications. And when He said, and you know the example that I always use, which is, you know, I, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know he didn't talk about basketball, right? But we spin it that way, right? You know he didn't talk about, about me making more and more money, but we spin it that way. We spin it every which way we want. But I don't care if it's a rough marriage or if it's financial problems or if it's uh, a sickness in the body or I don't care what it is. You know you can serve God because you can do it. No matter what the persecution is, you can do it because that's what he meant by what he said. They were defecting from the church because of the persecution. He says, stop. You can do this. You can stay faithful. You can stay the course. But what about the pressure? You can stay the course. But I'm really busy. You can stay the course. I don't have any money. You can stay the course. You can do it. You see, it can be applied in every part of your life. But it only means one thing. You can serve God no matter what you go through. Which number were we at? So, um, you know what I mean is by <laughs> subtle attacks, subtle attacks. When people say the Bible is true, but so is what the Pope says, so is what the church council says, so is what the church elders say, so is what my vision said, so is what my dream said, so is what all those prophets said in, in that prophetic conference. Uh, well, folks, what this does, it takes away the singularity of God's Word. It says, okay, God's Word is true, but so is a lot of other things. I can find my truth here, but I can find it elsewhere too. That, that we need to stop, family. We, and I know we don't do that, but just we need to stop that. There is one truth. It's the Word of God. Everything else is sinking sand. You would not have confidence if you, keep, if you keep running to other sources for truth. Here's the fourth subtle attack on truth that you will experience in this new year and in this new decade. And that is when a person says things like, well, that is your interpretation. And truthfully, nobody really can understand exactly what the Bible means. Well, this really makes biblical illiteracy Noble, because now suddenly you're humble. Well, we don't really know. We don't, we don't really know. Well, I don't know. Yes, we do know. <laughs> it's easy. We read it. And he wrote it in such a way that we could understand it. And hopefully this year will be a year that we chase after the Word of God in a greater way than we ever have. Because if ever there is a deception, if ever there comes a time when people don't see clearly anymore, uh, when they start grabbing at straws based on how they feel, it's when we start looking at sources for truth, sources of truth elsewhere than an objective truth, which is Scripture. We start looking for truth in how we view things, our opinions, how we feel, what we've experienced, and what others say. These are, this is dangerous ground. We are a Bible church, period. Amen? Amen? We have one source of truth, not my opinion, the Word of God. And that's why I always encourage at our church here, like, like the Bereans or the Thessalonians. Bereans. The Bereans, thank you. Just checking. Uh, then the Thessalon Thessalonians, okay. So the Bereans were more noble. Why? Because they went and said, hey, by the way, Jacques, uh, I, that's not really what that verse is saying, is it? Let's talk about it. 
and people do it, and I love it. I love, by the way, Bible conversation. And um, the Lord allows us to exercise humility <laughs> by, by being corrected regularly. Charles Spurgeon, one of our favorites, he said this. I love this statement. He says, the worst sort of clever men are those who know better than the Bible. That's the worst sort of clever person because he puts himself in the seat of God. Number two, number two is the riches of this world. The riches of this world. How can we see clearly? We have to go to scriptures. We just talked about it. We have to find the truth of every issue in life. And if ever somebody has gotten entangled in things that take them out of the very central activities of God's kingdom, it is this issue right here. And it's not a popular issue to talk about, but the riches of this world is a deception. There are really three, men uh, three things mentioned in scriptures that are extremely deceiving because it's mentioned over and over again. The first is the heart is deceiving, deceiving above all things. Jeremiah 79. The heart deceives. You know, people go like, you know, just follow your heart. <laughs> what are you, what's your heart passionate about? No, that's the worst kind of, that's the worst kind of uh, uh, counsel that you can give or receive, right? The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 79. Secondly, it says that deceitfulness of sin hardens the heart, Hebrews 3.13. The heart is hardened by that deception. And then Mark 4.19, we see that there's the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of wealth. Riches have, has a power to deceive. It's not dead. Money is not dead. It, it is actively working in people's lives, deceiving them. Now, it is very easy to point out the person who is under the power of money's deception. All you have to do is ask the person, if they believe that money has the power to deceive them, if they say no, you know they're deceived already. But also realize it is the person who is not on their guard against deception of money. That person's already deceived. The person that doesn't believe he can be deceived and the person that says, yeah, money is deceptive, but you know what? I'm not on my guard. I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'm going to be just fine. Now, God called us to not be deceived. So be on your guard constantly. Amen? Against this thing. Now remember, when something is deceptive, it is because it looks so right. It looks so authentic. It looks like the real deal. If I walk up to you and I say to you, hey, do you want to buy this $50,000 Rolex watch? And as I hand it to you, it's falling apart. Some of the gold got chipped away, and you can see the plastic sticking out. And you can, would you go like, yeah, right. right? You would go, this is not real. I can see it's not real. But if I bring you the Rolex watch, and I say, hey, do you want to buy this solid golden Rolex watch? And you look at it, you pick it up, and it's so heavy. And you go like, man, this is beautiful. And you look at it shining, and it's, it, it, it just looks so exact to another golden Rolex watch. You, you could be deceived because it looks so real. And deception has to look good. It has to look holy. It has to look righteous. It has to look like it's, it's, it's accepted by Christians. It has to look like, well, everybody sees this as right. That's what makes it deceiving. Now, the Bible does not give us quantitative answers as to how much a person should own. Because the question is, how, how much is enough? When, do you, when does it become wrong to have a lot? When does it become wrong? Do we know? Does the Bible tell us where that line is? How about not just a million, but multi-millions? Should a person stop there? Or should they continue making more money? Well, let me ask you this. How about reaching a billion? Shouldn't that be the cap? Like, you know what, at this point, you should, just, you should just start being good to everybody. That should be your full-time job. <laughs> How about multiple billions? 
What's Jeff at? He's like at 120 or something billion. I don't know. He was, and he got divorced, and I don't know where he's at now. But, I mean, people now have so many billions of dollars. Let me ask you, how many homes should a person have? What's the cutoff scripturally? One. Well, how, how big should a home be? At what point does it become questionable? For a pastor, it's always, you know, like, your home's already too big, no matter how small it is. <laughs> no, but I mean, seriously, at what point? You realize, you realize the question we have? Do you know the Bible doesn't give that answer, right? It doesn't give that answer. So let's talk about that just for a moment. Because the Bible does not give us this quantitative answer to what should be in the bank and and how hard should I really work towards my retirement? And, and how big should it really be? And how comfortable and luxurious should I really uh, live in and retire at? And here is, we don't know what the Bible says, but here is what we do know the Bible says. Remember, we squarely stand upon Scriptures alone. We're not going to use, we're not going to become subjective because what I just did right there is we became subject, subjective about something. We started thinking to ourselves, well, you know what, yeah. That politician, even though he shouldn't have four homes, that, you know, we start becoming subjective. And we go like, this is not right. Well, to me, that's not right. You see what you just did there? You made truth subjective to your opinion, to your feelings, to your experience, and to your perspective in life. What does the Bible say? So here is what the Bible does say. I want to just give you a few verses. In Mark 10, verse 21, we see that the rich young ruler was told to sell everything. That's what it meant for him to follow Jesus. He needed to, that guy, that guy, not you, but that guy needed to sell everything and follow Jesus. We see Zacchaeus gave away half of his wealth to the poor. And then Jesus said to him in Luke 19, 8 and 9, salvation came to this house today, Zacchaeus. And then we see in Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said, that the kingdom of heaven is like finding a treasure and selling everything, selling everything you have to have that treasure right there. We also see the apostle Paul said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, prideful, or to set their hopes on uncertain money, but on God who richly provides everything to enjoy. On God who richly provides everything to enjoy. They are to do good, these rich people, that's you, America, be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. <clears throat> All right, so let me give you just a machine gun version of God's, God's warnings to you and me regarding money. And I'm saying this to you, family, because I love you. I, truthfully, I do. I don't want to, I want to see uh, this thing come to an end where people cannot serve God because money. Well, it's not money. It's my job. Well, that's money. Well, I can't serve. Yes, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can serve God this whole entire year, this whole entire decade, for the rest of your life because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Through hard times, through difficult times, when your heart's broken, when you're disappointed, you can serve God. Yeah, but I got disappointed by a man of God. You can serve God. Amen? Amen. You can serve Him no matter what. But here is one of the things that I have seen as a pastor, and I'm sure many of you who've been around for a long time in ministry have seen this too. Money. Got none? Here they are. Getting settled, getting comfort, getting comfortable, getting busy, off they go. And it's not necessarily church attendance, but it's involvement in the kingdom of God. It's always, it's, it's, been, it's, it's that in a massive way. In a massive way. And I've got 20-some years of, of church experience I'm thinking of right now. So let me, let me give you a machine gun version of God's warning to you today regarding money. Mark 4.19. It says, but the cares of this world and the what? The deceitfulness of riches. Can everybody say the deceitfulness of riches? That it's deceiving, folks. <laughs> folks this riches will, will attempt to deceive you in 2020. God wants you to be wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, with clear sight and great perspective on where is Satan attempting to deceive me in? The world, Satan, the flesh, where? Here. Luke 12, 15. He told the people, be careful to guard yourselves from every kind of greed. Life is not about having a lot of material possessions. 
Matthew 6, 19. It actually says this. Stop storing up treasures for yourself on earth. Where moth, where moths and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Matthew 6, 33. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness. This ought to be your priority. And these things, referring to positions, will be given to you as well. And then to the man who built bigger and bigger barns, in other words, he was consistently growing his business and expanding his company. Luke 12, verse 20, he says, God said to him, Jesus speaking, you fool. I will demand your life from you tonight. I will take it. Now who will get what you have accumulated? Luke 12, 33, sell what you have and give it to those in need. This will fatten your purses in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Think about this. He's actually telling you, sow what you have and give to those in need. Now, this, this act right here will fatten your purses in heaven. I know this is not nice to hear, folks. But look at what the Bible does say. He says, and the purses of heaven have no rips or holes in them. Your treasures there will never disappear. No thief can steal from them. No moth can destroy them. In Luke 18, verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, talking about the rich young ruler, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's more difficult for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. You ask any parent, what do you hope for your child? Happiness and wealth. It's what they want for their children, happiness and wealth. I want holiness and salvation. (laughs) And all, all I can tell you is I did not say that. Jesus said it is more difficult for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of God. Yonggi Cho said, you know, uh, that he was asked after he built a church of a million people. Like when he came to America, he said, there's just one thing. In South Korea, we pray four hours every morning. And there are hundreds of thousands of people at prayer meetings at 4 a.m. in the morning. He says, but in America, there's one problem. It's called distraction. People are busy. People are busy. And it's difficult. It's difficult for wealthy people to prioritize. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he was talking about when he made that statement. Stay free from the love of money. James 2.5 says, Listen, my, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Ephesians 4.28, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, God does not draw a line as to no, three homes are fine, but four, forget it. Now it's getting out of hand. Or you know what? 500 million is fine, but now that you've reached a billion, stop. He didn't say that. There is no line. Have multiple billions. Work towards it. God knows, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a couple of billionaires sitting around in our congregation? Um, but yeah, that would be, wouldn't that be fun? And I, and I really believe that God will raise up because there's a gift called the gift of giving, right? It's a gift like gift of administrations and gift of service and gift of mercy and gift of exhortation and gift of giving. This is a gift that the Holy Ghost gifts people with where they have the capacity and the ability to actually accumulate a lot, but there's a purpose behind that gift. And it's to glorify God, not for luxury alone, right? And so... <clears throat> And so herein lies, to me, that line. You ready? Here is that line we're all looking for about how many homes and how much money and so forth. Here is that line. I'll read that verse to you again, Ephesians 4.28. Watch it. The thief, go, go back to the top there, please, Han, if you don't mind. The thief, let him not steal anymore. Uh, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him do what? Labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The Apostle Paul had an ability to say so much 
with just two lines. What was he saying? He says that you can steal. That's an option for you. He says that you can work to have. Now, that's another option. But here Paul's option is you can work to have in order to give. That's what he said right there. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Close that option. But rather let him work. Doing honest work with his own hands for a purpose beyond himself so that he may give to those in need. This is the line. That's, that's the heart. That's how God wants. God wants for us to see things clearly as to why we are so busy. <laughs> why? So the, the Bible does not draw a clear line between the simplicity in life or the luxury of life. But the truth is we have already discovered that wealth and luxury is dangerous. Wealth and luxury is dangerous. But simplicity, on the other hand, is worthless. Being poor, if that's what you choose to be, and have a little horse with a little buggy, and live far out on a field around no one, and you have nothing, that means you cannot even obey the scriptures that tells you to give to the poor out of your own abundance. Can you see? I have seen people who have given themselves to poverty. And they live loveless, loveless lives. Loveless. Couldn't care, couldn't care a lick about others. Then I have seen people who have amassed great wealth and live lives driven by love. So we have to watch out that we don't make truth subjective and we decide where that line is. But God says, okay, I'm not giving you a line. I'm giving you a purpose. Now go. And don't ever allow what I give you to make me unnecessary or second priority. And this is where that comes in. This is where it comes in. So God opens an opportunity. He gives you gifts and ability. He gives you he gives you a wonderful country to live in where there is even opportunity. And he gives you time and he gives you everything you need. And now that becomes more important than the God who gave it to you in the first place. Or it makes the God who offered it to you unimportant or unnecessary. But what happens is Paul addressed it and he said, Now to you who are rich, Timothy, pastor, tell your church, those who are rich, stop being so proudful because that's what pride does. Suddenly you become an enigma. And so here is that line. God says, here's the, here's the purpose. I've seen people who have given themselves to poverty, loveless. Then I've seen people who have amassed great wealth, driven by love. So when it comes to building wealth, learn how to throw yourself into both the warning and the encouragement. Because he just gave you both, the warning and the encouragement. Watch out for the deceitfulness of money, while at the same time, work relentlessly, having something to give and to share and to use as a currency of supporting God's people and God's kingdom. So learn to work hard, not towards a status symbol of wealth, but towards kingdom effectiveness and eternity. That's what it is we're working toward. You see, when everybody else is chasing the American dream, and their own white picket fence, we confidently rest in the New Testament warnings and exhortation concerning this issue. So live with open eyes, sober in every way, being aware of the warnings against love of money, and while at the same time being exhorted to love God with the money you have. Be aware of the warnings against the love for money, but love God with the money you have. Here's a practical explanation or application. Because it's easy to throw out, like, you know, theoretical thoughts. But here's a practical explanation for you. Never attempt to build wealth first and then serve God with it later. Serve God while building. And never build more than what your service to God allows you to. Don't outbuild 
your own kingdom from your service to God's. Serve God in the process of building. I was, I was very privileged to meet um, Samuel Truett Cathy. He's the founder of Chick-fil-A. Uh, what a humble, wonderful man. I met Dan also, his son. And basically, uh, 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 S. Truett Cathy built his business on a six-day week period. He wasn't going to outbuild God's kingdom. Understand what I'm saying? He didn't attempt to take a biblical stand after his success. He did so in every way throughout the years of building his company. And today, he is the beacon of hope to anyone who wants to live and serve God the same way. Do you realize that he has, I think, the second, third, or fourth largest restaurant, chain restaurant in this country? Yeah, income-wise. I was going to give you more examples of Steve Green from Hobby Lobby, but let's, let's move on. Because I do believe that it's so important for us to have 2020 vision in all three of these areas. You are not the source of truth. I am not your source of truth. The Pope isn't. The church board isn't. The board of elders are not. We do not believe in the consensus theory of truth where everybody agrees on something. Therefore, it's got to be right. We do not have a, we, we do not have a subjective truth that's subject to our thoughts, our feelings, our experiences. No, the truth of the Word of God is the only truth we build our lives upon. Amen? Amen. Do not be deceived. The second is riches. The deception of riches. Do not allow the devil to deceive you this year or the next 10 years, or the rest of your life regarding this issue here. Be free. Be free from it. It is just wonderful to be able to go to a job and say, truthfully, I don't actually care about your money. And uh, somebody said to me, uh, I've got two supervisors in this one spot. That, um, they got real bad language. And so they, they really love ragging on me. And I think it's hilarious. I laugh with them. And so one day they called me separate. They called me you know, to uh, the garden center. And uh, it's kind of like their smoking corner. And they say, so you got, the guy goes, so you never get offended, do you? I'm like, why? Why are you asking? He says, man, we've, this, this supervisor and I, we've been really trying to, like, get you to uh, react and get mad, get angry, get offended. Uh, so they always say some real cruel things, and, and, and a lot of it's really funny. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> some of it. But you didn't have to say it that way. <laughs> so he goes, you never get offended, do you? I said, you know what, truly, truthfully, if, if I valued anything you said, I probably would have. <laughs> if what you said really mattered in any way, it probably would have been. But you know what, truthfully, and, and, and uh, he promised he'll come to church one day soon. I said, just bring your wallet, all right? Because he always makes fun of me. He says, he says, what, what, what's next? You're a pastor. We got to create some helicopter pad for you. One day you're gonna arrive in your helicopter, you know, as all the other pastors do. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm working here. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Why would I even spend one day here if that was true? <laughs> but you know, truthfully, the reason we get offended is because we value words we should not be valuing. We value other people's thoughts we should not be valuing. Other people's statements we should not. Because this is, these are the thoughts, the statements you ought to be valuing. And if you really value this and uh, compared to others, that wouldn't offend you. It would be okay. And you won't believe how much favor you will gain by that. The third area in which people get extremely deceived and crippled in their spiritual walk is in their relationships. I want to read to you Psalm 1, verse 1 and 3. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow evil men's advice. Oh, the joy of those who do not follow evil men's advice, who do not hang around with sinners, scoffing at the things of God, but they delight in doing everything God wants 
them to. And day and night are always, they are always meditating on his laws and thinking about ways to follow him more closely. They are like trees along a riverbank bearing luscious fruit each season without fail. Their leaves shall never wither and all they do shall prosper. Everything this guy does prospers. He's not even good at it <laughs> and he's prospering. <laughs> But there's a requirement here. Here God is encouraging us to take inventory and manage our influencers. God is telling you here, take inventory, measure, and manage the amount of influence that comes into your life. In other words, ask yourself these questions. Who speaks into my life? Who speaks into your life? Who advises me? Who determines how I feel about things? These questions will help you pinpoint those who are influencing you. Who determines how I think about love, money, and life in general? Who determines how I think about those things? Who are my heroes in life? Who influences me? And here Psalm says, I'll read it to you again. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow evil men's advice, who are not influenced by evil men, who do not hang around with sinners, who are not influenced by them, scoffing at the things of God. But they delight in doing everything God wants them to do, and they shall prosper no matter what they do. God's choice, God's way of prospering you is by getting you to choose the right influences in life. And turn off the channels from all the influencers that are not of God. I want to finish off with this verse and explain it in short. Hebrews 3.12. This is so important. May we be insulated, never isolated from the world, but insulated from the world so that we may have 20-20 vision, not be deceived, whether it be in finding truth, in making a lot of money, or even in the relationships that we have in this life. Look at Hebrews 3.12. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, an evil, unbelieving heart, an unbelieving heart. Can you tell your neighbor, unbelieving heart? Unbelieving. He says, Take care, brothers, lest, lest there be an unbelieving heart. Who's he talking to? Brothers. He's not talking to the unsaved. He's talking to the church. And he's saying to the church, Be careful, my brothers, that there's not an unbelieving heart inside of you, leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day. But do what? Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. I, I'm not really, you know, people might start saying that I'm a holiness preacher. But this one thing I understand in my own life, and that is that sin has at times hardened me to the point where I did not want God anymore. I did not want to raise my hands. I did not want to sing. I don't want to read the Bible. I have no desire for prayer. I have no desire for the things of God. Sin does that to even the most spiritual person. Now, Jesus paid for your sin but it still has an effect, a hardening effect on our hearts today. And it says right here, Take care, brothers, lest, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Be exhort, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of riches. The word exhort here is parakleo. Parakaleo. Parakaleo. Kristen? Don't worry about it. So, you didn't pronounce it right. It's <laughs> paracalio. Okay, then. <laughs> Every word comes from the original Greek. I know the original Greek, really. Didn't live that long. <laughs> anyway, weak joke. Let's move on. Here is the act. Of exhort is to admonish and to encourage. That's what that word means. To admonish and to encourage. To admonish and encourage. Today's church believes, uh, modern day church believes that if it's not encouraging, it's not of God. 
Well, this is just because they just know nothing. <laughs> Parakaleo says to admonish, truthfully, to admonish and to encourage. Both those things are true of this word. And when Paul says, exhort one another, there's nothing wrong with you picking up a phone and say, brother, where have you been? Tony, this is not for you. You're already doing this. You've got to relax a little. <laughs> brother, where have you been? <laughs> Don't even come back ever again. <laughs> no, parakaleo is to admonish and then encourage. So here is the act we are encouraged to participate in, exhorting one another. That's the act that, that Scripture tells us, okay? Who are to exhort one another? The brothers within the church are to exhort one another. What is the heart or the purpose behind this fellowship that Paul calls us to participate in in this verse? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of riches and fall away from God. Just to exegetically look at this verse, we understand this, therefore, we have to do two things. We have to admonish and encourage who? Our own brothers for the purpose of what? That they won't be hardened. How? By the deceitfulness of sin. Well, it wasn't really that bad. It wasn't really that bad. I know you think it's not that bad, but that's why your heart's no longer hot towards God. And, and it's, it's, we ought to care for one another. God didn't think it funny when He said, Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, you are. <laughs> yes, I am. May this be true of our family here. You see, why do we have to exhort one another every single day? We're just exegetically looking at this, okay? Why exhort one another every day? Did you see He said that? Look at that again. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day. To all those once a monthers, exhort one another every day. To those every two monthers, <laughs> every day. You know, I mean, every day. Why does it say every day? Because you are being lied to every single day. Your three enemies in life lies to you every day. Your flesh lies to you every day. When you wake up in the morning, it's lying to you. Your flesh lies to you more on Friday nights and Saturday nights than in any other night of the week. Your flesh lies to you on Sunday mornings. Your flesh lies to you every day. The world lies to you every day. You can find it on any, every single TV station, radio station, or movie that you watch. Every single day you are lied to by the world. The devil and his demons lies to you every day. He did in the garden. He hasn't stopped. And if you are being lied to every single day, Paul says, we better exhort each other every single day. Every day. I need to be, what are the two things? I need to be admonished and encouraged. Every day you need to be admonished and encouraged. I don't have time. You have text. I don't have time. You have email. I don't have time. FaceTime me. I'll pray for you. <laughs> Leave a message. I'll pray for you. No, you know what I'm saying? Every single one of us need to remain connected with those who are exhorting us every single day, admonishing and encouraging. Christian fellowship exists for this. What is this? It is to say things that keep each other believing. That's why we are in each other's lives is to say things that will keep each other believing. Small groups exist for this purpose, to say things that will keep each other believing. Christian marriage and parenting exists for this, to say things that will keep each other believing. That's why we are in each other's lives. Make sure you are the person that keeps others believing. And make sure to be open and receive exhortation from another when you are to be held accountable and if they're trying to keep you believing. Tim Keller said this, you will not lead a wise life unless you are good at choosing, forging, and keeping great friendships. Let me pray for you. Father, today, I pray for clear eyes. Yes. 
spiritually sober eyes. Especially, Father, as we enter this new decade, this new year, that we will be sober when it comes to discovering, finding, standing on the truth, the actual truth, that we will not be deceived by making truth subjective to us or to others, but that truth is objective. We look toward the scriptures. It's objective. We look out of ourselves, not into ourselves. We look out to find what God has already told us is true. God, I pray that the eyes of our church family will be opened and will be clear and will be sober, that they will see truth as you articulated. God, I pray that they will never be deceived, not one day by riches, but that they will be free from its clutches and that they will rule it. It will never rule them. God, I thank you that they are free from the deception of wrong relationships. Lord God, that they will give themselves to you completely and that they will exhort but also receive exhortation every day. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.